Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Main Idea Podcast, where today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Danny Olofsson. A quick reminder for those that enjoy this podcast and would like to support it. Please take 30 seconds and leave a five-star review on Apple or Spotify and subscribe to the YouTube channel. This helps the show get discovered organically and helps me continue to bring on amazing guests. There are also now timestamps in the show notes, so feel free to jump below, select the part that interests you most, although I always recommend listening to the episode in its entirety. Lastly, I want to just give a big shout out to everyone who continues to rate the show and share the show. I can't really express how much this means, but it's through your sharing and your reviews that more people are finding out about it, so thank you very much for doing that. Danny Olofsson holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Conflict Management from Lipscomb University and a Master's of Science in Neuropsychology from the University of Alberta. She has completed six half marathons and multiple ultra marathons, including the Canadian Death Race, which she attempted to later do solo. Danny is also an accomplished triathlete, having represented Team Canada for the International Triathlon Union and has podiumed many times in her sport, including her 2019 gold medal. Additionally, Danny is a jiu-jitsu blue belt, which is why we have this conversation today as we explore what brought her from those endurance sports into the wonderful art of jiu-jitsu. She has a unique understanding of physical demands of extreme endurance competition, short burst anaerobic jiu-jitsu competition, and everything in between. She's honestly a freak athlete, intelligent researcher, and the queen of dad jokes. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Without further ado, Danny Olofsson. Awesome. Well, Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I've actually been more and more excited as I've done research for this to look into what you've taken time to study as well as your athletic prowess. And I think that this is going to be a really nerdy episode, but also <laughs> a very useful episode for a lot of the listeners. So thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I've also gotten pretty excited uh, as we've kind of been chatting in the last few days. So excited to nerd out. Yeah, well, we're going to just jump right into one of my favorite and one of, I think, maybe the more challenging things to understand when it comes to jujitsu specifically, but also just in general. And the reason I bring this up is because you have such an experience with this topic, and that's endurance. And yeah. for people that have skipped through the intro for whatever reason, you've done six half Ironmans, you've done ultra running in the past you have an understanding of endurance on the bike, running, swimming, and then also competing in jiu-jitsu. It's not like you, you just show up for training every once in a while. So yeah. maybe we can start real big picture. You can zoom out quite a bit and talk to me about what was it about endurance sports that even sparked your interest in the first place? Um, yeah, so something actually what got me into ultramarathoning, I don't like to go. So that was kind of my first endurance sport that I jumped into. I don't like to do just easy things and uh, I considered doing a marathon and I thought, you know, what's better is if I completely skip that step and we do like three in one day. Right. So I completely resonate with this. Actually. Yeah. So respect. I was also like young. I was in my early 20s when I started doing ultramarathoning and, you know, classic early 20s. You just hate yourself a little bit. And um, <laughs> we love pain at that age for some reason. So, yeah, really dug into that. And over time, it turned into doing triathlon as I cross trained on the bike and 
yeah, just love those gritty sports. So I've, I've talked at length with several other guests about this and I'm curious, what is it about that that you find interesting? Because this is something that obviously not everyone loves, right? Like being in, mm -hmm. you know, I talked to my dad about it in CrossFit, being in like the pain cave is a place that he loves to be. And he, he shows up all the time in that zone and can really perform there. I, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I think that I enjoy those really tough roles or the last part of a, a training session that's really brutal, but that's like a very specific adaptation or mm -hmm. mental state that you kind of have to be in to actually like that, not to be willing to go through it, but to f seek it out. Why, like, why were you drawn to that? What is it about this liking a little bit of pain that like, stuck with you? Uh, so I've got kind of a scientific answer for you. I've got I my, uh, my answer. And then I also have kind of a spiritual answer for you. So, you know, I think when you go into endurance sports, it's all about turning off your brain and being able to then get into kind of this meditative state of not thinking, not thinking about how your body hurts, not thinking about how, Hey, is my foot broken? I kicked a rock like 15 miles back. Um, yeah. You know, I think these endurance sports really challenge you to be able to get into a meditative state or to get into a state where you're no longer listening to your body. With that, um, my scientific answer on that is, so I got pretty invested into looking at the emotional system of the brain uh, during my undergrad. And one of the things we look at is like with stress and emotional issues that you're facing in life, you know, not real physical threats, your brain doesn't necessarily understand the difference between those threats and like a physical threat. Right. And fitness is a great way to kind of channel that fight or flight response and trick your brain into thinking that you've dealt with this problem. Right. So, you know, when you're dealing with problems in life and you can go and sit on a bike for three hours and literally numb all these negative feelings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a pretty powerful tool to have. Um, it's just, it comes at the cost of a lot of pain, but when you get really good at meditating through that, you get very good at understanding where you need to go in your mind to not listen to the pain. And I think that's where that addiction comes in is just fine tuning that ability. It's definitely intense intense how you can you can build that skill like when you're I'm trying to think of a good example here but uh i mean i could use cold exposure as a good example because it, yes it's trendy right now right but yeah i hated the cold 70 days ago i hated it like i don't know if you could have paid me to like go take a cold shower honestly i thought and i i would gawk at anything like wim hoffy or, or just, it was just like Come on. I'm overhearing about it, right? Yeah. And then I did this episode with a friend of mine and he he's in his 50s and he pushed me to like he's like just try it. And so I I rewired like what I thought I was capable of doing. I was like, "Okay, look, the idea of doing 3 to 8 minutes is insane. There's absolutely no way. But I think I could probably do 30 seconds." And yeah. this might be like the I hate running but I think I can run around the block. So you mm -hmm. find that like lowest common denominator thing you think that you can do. So your brain's already in like override mode. I can get this done. And then 30 became a minute and a minute became, you know, six minutes in much colder water. 
and it's this skill that got built to where now that's messed up to say I actually look forward to doing it. Yeah. And in any endurance sport or anything where there's like physical, especially in jujitsu, right, where there's this unpredictable element because someone else is trying to attack you, it's a really powerful thing to be able to build and then utilize. Absolutely. I mean, to be competitive in any level like you were, you have to be in complete control of that part of your brain. Yeah, you're as an athlete, you're kind of always fighting your brain's intuition to try and allow you not to die. Right. <laughs> uh, it doesn't want you to be in the freezing cold. It doesn't want you to go run 100 miles in one day because right. that's not good for it. And yeah, being able to, like you said, like where you're setting these small markers that you're trying to reach, uh, it allows you to just take these tiny goals an inch towards it, but you're slowly, like, it's almost like you're negotiating with yourself. You're negotiating with your brain and being like, Hey, it's just, it's just 30 seconds. Oh, it's just 30 seconds more. When I did ultra marathoning, I actually had this tactic where I would be running and they're all through the mountains. I lived, uh, near the Rocky mountains in Canada. So I would look ahead and I would find a tree and I would tell myself, I'd be like, you just have to make it to that tree. That's it. And I'm fully lying to myself. There is like 16 hours oh, left yeah. in this race. I don't have to make it to that tree. I get to that tree and I'm like, all right, you have to make it to that tree now. <laughs> yeah. It's these small negotiations. Yeah. The compa- like compartmentalizing the challenges. I, I've always, the reason I say I resonate with you at the beginning when you were talking about the marathon thing is I've never had a desire to run a marathon. Yeah. But I have had a lot of desires to run ultra marathons. Yeah. And having done like, you know, half marathons just in training for for fun or for conditioning, I've always wondered, I'm like, what and maybe you can speak to this, like what is that next push feel? How different is like mile twenty six point two to mile thirty? How hard is that compared to mile thirty to mile seventy? Um, so the question you're asking, are you asking kind of like when you're doing these long races, what does it look like as you're getting into the, the deeper aspects of the, the distance? Yeah, like psychologically as you as psychologically <laughs> as you pass what you know is a marathon, right? And you just yeah. conceptualize like this is people's lifetime goal and you just mm. dusted it. Yes. And now I you're see. not even halfway done. Yeah. Um it's actually a pretty wild feeling, but you're always sitting there like you'll hit the marathon mark but you'll look at how much more you have left and it means like nothing to you hello ladies and gentlemen if you enjoy this podcast and the guests that i have on you can support it by checking out my amazing sponsor athletic greens i started taking athletic greens because i've always been a firm believer that health starts on the cellular level from my competitive years as an athlete to my weekly output of jiu-jitsu surfing and strength training Cellular nutrition is a non-negotiable since I need every leg up I can manage. That's why I won't skip on ingredients or quality when I start my day with pure AG1. Plus, AG1 contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, and it honestly tastes good while all costing less than $3 a day. Look, if you put in the work, you need to reward your body. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Abe. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash A-B-E 
to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. As weird as that sounds, you just, you're like, oh yeah, I ran a marathon. That's fine. (laughs) I've got like another one to go right now. And then some. And, And then some. And typically ultras are done again in like the mountains. So you're like, I have to summit this mountain right now. I have to run down this mountain. Um, but yeah, ultras really challenge you. I used to joke it's like doing drugs because you literally go insane during the I run. Imagine. You become manic. So a lot of times you'll have what's called a pacer. And that's somebody who's fresh that comes in and they just run with you. And, and they're pretty much just an emotional support person. <laughs> right. And... Yeah, they like I remember I was running one of the later legs of a race and my friend, he was pacing for me and there was just like this cliff that I had to scale up and it was all loose rocks and shale and it was not going to be fun. Yeah. And I just sat on the ground and I cried for like (laughs) 25 seconds and he's looking at me like I'm insane and I'm like, just one more. Okay. Okay. Let's go now. And he's like, what is that? I'm like, it's, it's just, it is what it is. You know, I mean, you have these like small a, pockets of emotion. Like a spiritual breakthrough to get through that type of distance. Oh yeah. You become manic. Yeah. It's, it's wild. So what's the, I mean, you cross the finish line and what are the emotions that go through your head? I can't even explain it. It's, it's like this full body, like, I almost want to say like a flush of, yeah just relief, happiness, sadness. Um, I I really can't put words to it. It's very hard to articulate. It's probably your brain breaking down, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, uh, you know, I think about ultramarathoning has always been fascinating to me because if you do the numbers globally, like you are, especially as a multi-time competitor, you're of a very small, very small group of people globally. Yeah. Who have ever pushed themselves to that limit. Like that's that is really it's impressive, of course, but it's also like psychotic. You've been able yeah, to get yourself crazy. to this point where just the idea alone is not it's like I don't know, it's just out of the universe of existence for most people. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. And to be there and to to like to know that you're like that. It's got to be kind of like, that's got to be kind of weird. It is weird. It's, I have an interesting relationship with it now because I did it before David Goggins made it cool. (laughs) So people just, I'm going to swear on the show. People thought I was just fucking crazy. Like they had never heard of what this was. They were like, what do you mean an ultra marathon? I'm like, so I guess backpack. Yeah. I I just run, I, I run up and down three to four mountains. I do it in a day. That's it. They're like, what? You do what? That's insane. What was your social circle like at the time? (laughs) Um, Trying to think now. Um, You know, I had a lot of friends that were in the fitness, and then I had a lot of friends that were partying. Mm -hmm. So I kind of ended up drifting towards the friends that were more into fitness. And it was a group of women uh, that I went to university with that actually got me into ultramarathoning. And I was already pretty fit, but they decided they were going to do this race. It's called the Great Canadian Death Race. And it's five segments or five legs, and you can often divide it up. So you can do it as a team. You can do it however you want. 
Um, and they needed somebody to run the last leg, which is like you're running at like, I think I started at 3 a.m. and Jeez. finished at like 7 or 8 a.m. or something. Um, so you're like headlamp. I mean, you're only seeing a couple of feet in front of you because it's not yeah. like you're doing this on a treadmill. You're out in the oh yeah middle the of middle the of the mountains. Rockies. Yeah. Yes, by yourself, which I hadn't considered until I got out there. By the way, and pepper I was spray like, is not going to stop a mountain lion. No, <laughs> and there was multiple components of that or uh, elements of that race where I was trying to go up these hills and I'd kick a rock. And it would tumble down, but it wouldn't hit another rock until way later. So I wouldn't hear a sound until, you know, there's like an eight, 10 second delay. And I'm like, what was that? Oh my God. And you look back and you don't see a headlamp. So you know, it's not a person, but there's a psychological element. (laughs) I mean, did you not just think you were like losing your mind? That this was the thing that was your interest that you kept wanting to push for this, that, and, and I really want to, I want to, undersell like i don't want to undersell the fact that you were doing this before it became a thing because there are a lot of people a lot that are like have interest of this and and this is great i think in the long run right it's i think it's wonderful that someone like david goggins has inspired people to push themselves outside of their limits and gone and done this i think that's wonderful but doing that before is really something out of the ordinary when you think about it yeah yeah, it was, uh, it's like a special type of crazy at that time. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing for fuel in a situation like that? It's interesting when you're racing, that's actually one of the biggest components of doing ultra marathoning is calculating and managing your water input, your salt input and your food input. Um, so, or your intake rather. So, yeah, I would have to average taking in 100 calories for every 20 minutes. And you do that in in bars or, or like liquid and so powders? And... That's the other thing. You're bringing it all with you. So you have to look like I had a pack for like if I had five legs because you have a crew with you of people that meet you at different checkpoints and they give you what they need to give you. I had five bags set up and they had different amounts of food that I needed in the water and I had calculated how much water I needed to pick up at whatever aid stations there were. And there's typically not many aid stations. Um, you're trying to get the most bang for your buck on calories to weight. And then you're also factoring in what's called palate fatigue, which is Hmm. when you're taking in gels and like just straight sugar, it's nasty. You, you like, you just start gagging on them. Like your, your body does not want to take in any more sugar. It does not want to take in any more salt. It is done. It's rejecting it. So then you're trying to add in some novelty into the food intake. Um, so I actually switched to, at the end of my ultra marathoning, I had kind of refined it down to using baby food. I've heard this before. I'm not. Kidding. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I've heard this like for this exact reason because yeah, your glue like you're trying to get as much glucose as you can possibly get because that's yeah. actually an endurance situation. It's not people are like oh I gotta have my gels. They're doing like an eight mile run. It's like your body's you're no. not eliminating your glucose stores on an eight mile run. No, but you are a hundred percent in this situation. Yeah. So you have to have sugar for yeah. your body to function properly. But just eating fake 
gels. I've heard it, this before that baby yeah. food is like the go-to. Baby food is pretty good because it also doesn't have much like in the way of thickeners or preservatives in it. So you're managing your stomach the whole time, especially in ultra marathons. You do this as well in half Ironmans and full Ironmans. This is definitely a component. It just there's way more aid stations um, with triathlons. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like the other thing I added in and uh, it's the most Canadian thing I think I've done is... uh, (laughs) Eat po- like poutine, spoonfuls of poutine. No, I just drink straight maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually, I feel like that's got to be on the healthier side, though. Yeah, there's like actually pure maple companies. Syrup. Yeah, just pure maple syrup. And there's companies that caught on to it. And uh, they created like the basically in gel packs. And it's just maple syrup, ginger, and salt. But it, it just tastes mostly like a little slightly spicy maple syrup. But the ginger calms your stomach. The maple syrup is so high in sugar and it's clean. And then are you, you said, you mentioned electrolytes, another hot topic these days. Um, Oh yeah. People love it. How are you calculating like magnesium and potassium intake for, because I'm just like ballparking. It's gotta be like a 36 hour race plus, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for ultra marathons, oftentimes they're 24 hours. So the one that I would do and train for was 24 hours long. Um, but honestly, I just did a lot of my, and I did research on it at the time, but I haven't touched on it since then. I did a lot by feel. So you can kind of tell when your salt is getting low because you'll start to cramp or you can tell when your salt intake is too high because you'll have literal granules of salt all over your skin. Um, And this was something that I had learned from a podcast where they had explored that, but yeah. I was just listening to um, Andrew Huberman and Dr. Amy Mm. Galpin, who works with a lot of the UFC fighters, and they were talking about electrolytes and how a lot of it is intuitive. Like if you look at your clothes when you're done training, and you yeah. have that white residue around your armpits or your neck, you're probably oversalted. And conversely, if you're not, then it could be an undersalting. But you have to, to some degree, you do have to experiment with that yourself and find out what's best for you. But, and we yeah. could, I mean, get into this with how it pertains to jujitsu because that's a different thing. And you're wearing the gi and then you're wearing rash guards and everything. But you're, yeah. you're trying to be like as light and as dry as you possibly can be, right? Uh, when you're ultra marathoning and when you're doing triathlons, honestly, like you, you don't even think about it at that point. Like the, typically it's in the summer and, and sweat doesn't stay on you. You're actually like a lot of times you're pouring water on you. Wow. Just to stay cool enough. Yeah. And you're going through like creeks and streams and mud. So yeah, your feet are wet anyways. You've got pretty much trench foot going on most of the race. <laughs> Something so, you haven't seen since World War One. Right. Yeah, you're just Vietnam mode out there in the Rocky yeah. Mountains. <laughs> so this, I mean, it brings me, I, I didn't expect that we would talk for 20 minutes about ultra marathon running, but I'm fascinated with it. So it's been very fun. How did you know that you were at the end of that line and it was ready to find something different? Because obviously the competitive spirit is very much a part of who you are. Yeah. Honestly, I probably will get back into doing ultra marathons at one point here, but I had a, okay. So there's this race called the great Canadian death race and it's five legs, 125 kilometers. And it's like, I think you do 
three or four summits, but it's God all like it's difficult. Your legs have time cutoffs. It's Mm -hmm. difficult. And I wanted to solo it, which as a woman, like very, very few women successfully solo this race. I had done every single leg at one point. So I had done like the fifth leg. My first year I did it. I did leg one and two the second year. And then I did three, four, five. And I was like, all right, I'm ready to solo this. And I spent like a year training for this race. And the amount of planning that goes into it, like calculating the mass of the food that you're carrying, everything else, um, whether you're going to have pulls with you on that route, like what you're going to, it's just endless. And so the toughest cutoff was getting to my, the end of my leg three cutoff because leg two is terrible. You do two mountain summits at like high noon and it ends with you going down a mountain. That's like just pure shale and just no, no woods, like just straight sun exposure. I remember the first time I went down it, there was like the fire department was trying to drive this machine up to get this man who had passed out on the side. Yeah. The um, risk is real in those. Oh situations. yeah. You, people like no right, collarbones, wrists, yeah. everything. Like it's, it's treacherous. So I go to solo this race and I've spent now years with this goal going up to this and I get done my first leg and it's going great. I get done the second leg really hard, but it's going great. I do the third leg. That's where I cried when I saw the giant hill. Um, that's going great. And the fourth leg is just 10 kilometers straight up a mountain. So you get to the very peak of the mountain and then you come down this. It's just one massive mountain. So I know that this next leg that I'm going to be going on is going to be really difficult. I'm in the last, you know, probably like last 10, 15 minutes of this leg before I hit the checkpoint. I've got a pacer with me. So I have my friend with me. And we pop out of the woods in one area. We go to cross over the highway and up into another section. And the race director is standing on the road. And he said, hey, there's a mother bear and a baby that was spotted up in there. So just be really loud. Yeah, exactly what you want to hear before you push through to the next. Yeah. And uh, I look at my pacer and I'm like, oh, okay. Like, do we? do we keep going? And he's like, well, yeah, I I guess like, I don't know what else we're going to do. And we go up and we're on this trail and like making noise the entire time, banging sticks, banging our poles. And right above us, like there's like another trail that's right above us. And the mother bear is running like along with us, with the baby. Like she's pissed at us. Like she's trying to chase us out from this area. I'm just crying to my friend now at this point, like bawling my eyes out. I'm like, you're going to leave me. (laughs) We're trying to be so loud to scare this bear away. It eventually goes away. Earlier in the race, I had like punted this boulder and my foot was definitely like my toe was broken and just not having a fun time at this point. And we make it into the checkpoint Somebody on my crew, she was an EMT worker, and so she was going to start an IV on me before I went up into the next leg of the race. And my crew, I had talked to them, and I'm like, I'm going to tell you I want to quit, and you can't let me quit. 
this was like before you started you kind of like yeah yeah like we had this big pep we've seen that in the movie yeah i'm like i'm gonna cry i'm gonna plead with you like you just gotta be like no you're doing this and so i'm not having a good time like they unwrap my feet and they're they're putting duct tape and vaselineing it up and they won't let me look at my feet they put like ice packs around them and it's apparently well my turns out like i had broken my toe and it was all swollen and it was not a pretty sight Mm -hmm. but she goes to start an iv on me and she's having difficulties this is an emt worker like they do getting like finding the vein no so my veins just kept collapsing because i was so dehydrated like i'd been taking water but my belly was so bloated with the water like i was no longer absorbing in the water and uh yeah my veins kept collapsing and they collapsed nine times and she kept going to smaller and smaller needles and she was like okay you're not allowed to go (laughs) and uh so she they stopped my race there which is definitely the right decision and ended up being an excellent decision because that next leg that I was going to have to run, which was going up to the top of the mountain, they had a freak snowstorm on the top of the mountain and had to air evac people off of the top of the mountain. So I was like, you know what, this is a good decision. And at the time I had been training when I trained for this, because your body can only take so much in the way of training. I'd started doing road biking Mm -hmm. and I was so sad about this race. Like I had trained for years for this thing and yeah. spent like just so long and so many people had helped me. Like it was crazy. The investment that went into it and my coach, she was also a triathlete and she was like, Hey, why don't you just do this? Like this triathlon, like at, at the end of the summer, like take a month off and like, just go do it for fun. And I was like, all right, fine. Like, sure. And I did it and I ended up winning my like age bracket and <laughs> It was only like, I think I was only out there for like two and a half hours. I was like, this is great. Everyone's exhausted. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like normally I've got 15 more hours at this point, like love this sport. And so I've kind of taken a segue into triathlon and that field ever since, but I've been having the craving to kind of jump back into the ultras as of late. It's really crazy how in a lot of these endeavors, whether it's like just any great feat that people accomplish, there's all this preparation that goes into it. Whether it's like the teams that's behind the scenes that you don't see, the people carrying equipment, the people, oh, yeah. the medics that are on on deck, because it, again, you can't undersell how much this is actually a risk. Like you're really pushing your body to a limit that is like we talked about with the percentage of people who do this. It's not common. It's really high risk. Yeah, You're in the elements you're pushing your body beyond a threshold that you've ever trained. That's why it's the event, right? Like you, you can't train the event distance to go do the event. So you do all no. this stuff, all this preparation, and then you hope that your body is just like on board that day randomly yep. on the day that it happens to be that, you know, your body doesn't know that because your yeah. body's going in this 24 hour cycle of existing. It has no idea that there's like this calendar date in the future where it's going to have to perform. So we do yeah. all these things to prep and get ready and then something like that happens and you're like your veins won't accept an IV for hydration. And then it's this tough call because it's all the preparation and the hard work and the planning and the coordinating and the team. And you know that it's just like watching, you know, you watch a fighter in the UFC. They go back to their corner and they're like, put me back in there. They're all yeah. going to say that every fighter yeah. is going to want to get back in. 
Every mm-hmm. single one. Their eye could literally be hanging out of their head, and they'd be like, just duct tape it. I'm ready. Right. Yep. Somebody has to step in and say no. Yeah. Because this is actually going to put you at risk of, like, your health. Yeah. And it's hard when you're that motivated, driven person because you just feel like you're failing. You feel like you're you're not tough enough. You're not good enough. Everyone else is better. All the people that completed it, they're they're better than you. They did a better job. And it's like, it's just not the case. It's such a dice roll on performance. Absolutely. That's a whole nother like mental gymnastics that you have to go through Yeah, is figuring that out. How do you talk to yourself as an athlete, as a human and like bring yourself back to baseline following something like that? Yeah. And especially with ultras, because they, they run no matter what, like bear in the woods, keep going cougar in the woods keep going thunderstorm pouring rain keep going snow keep going that's part of it is they tell you you have to prepare for anything so the variability is so much higher on those days but yeah when you have this massive goal getting back to your question and it doesn't go the way you want it to go whether it's your fault or not it's people experience a massive depression after this Um, and I definitely did at that point in time. Um, honestly, like the way I've always dealt with it is I find another goal. So I'll sign up for another race. I'll do something else. Um, my coach at the time, she knew that's what I needed to do. And that's why she pushed me to do that. Triathlon was, she was like, here, go, go focus on this. Yeah. (laughs) Go do this. Here's another, here's another goal. Go fetch that. (laughs) But I always, yeah, it's kind of always continuing on people like like yourself people like myself that are drawn towards these intense things like i just i'm going to find a jujitsu in my it's just gonna something like that will always be in my life there's going to be this weird thing where i'm I'm trying to find out more who i am in these like oven situations that are crazy and so sometimes i wonder if like we're the most broken yeah and you know you seek these out because they give you like purpose and and meaning even like in small aspects of your life and it's like it's a weird type of mental health conflict because on one side you're like or I can only speak for myself I feel I feel very like on my two feet right like I I I love my life and and the way things are going and I'm very happy but then I'm like if someone took away my ability to train or if they took away jujitsu or martial arts and and that like it's just a unique intensity that you feel when you're training like that. Mm-hmm. What, who would I be? What would happen? And I like, it's kind of a scary question because I, I don't know how much of this, uh, these endeavors are like keeping me at an even keel. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's an interesting like psychological conundrum. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. You talk about how people who are drawn to this are kind of like the broken people and uh, you're a hundred percent correct. Like no one is normal in jujitsu. I don't know if you've no. noticed that. Like everyone, I'm like, what's your trauma? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you here? <laughs> um, and it, honestly, the same is in same with ultra marathons. Like the ultra marathon community is super similar to the jujitsu community. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's just a lot of people that are like, they've got stuff that they're sorting through. You know. Yeah. It was interesting getting into the career of being a personal trainer and finding out that underneath this health and wellness and altogether external appearance that inside there was a lot of like 
uh, yeah, choppiness or like kind of rough pre-existence. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. And you definitely see that in the jujitsu community too. Like most of the people that are black belts, at least, um, it's kind of going out of style now. You're getting more like normal people that are black belts and not ex-criminals. But yeah, most people like who are black belts in jujitsu are black belts in jujitsu because that's like the best job they could do with their background. Like involved in like criminal activities, drugs, not everyone, but it's a very common background that you'll see in jujitsu. I think it can be, it's the physical nature is glue it, it can be glue it can hold people together and, and i think that that's a good thing i mean like i said for me training and physical activity has always given me a big purpose in life it's given me a lot of direction it made me make a lot of the choices that you did where like when i was in high school and people were being jackasses i was a jackass sometimes but there were a lot of times where i chose to be really focused on the sport and the only thing i went to bed thinking about skiing woke up thinking about skiing and i wanted mm-hmm. to be an olympian that's all I cared about. I didn't care about anything else. And so it does kind of hone you into this way of making choices about what you're doing. That's really productive. It has trade-offs, right? Socially, if you're, you know, excelling in, uh, equestrian, excelling in ultramarathon, excelling in triathlons, you're kind of an outlier, like find another person who's doing all three of those at the same time. (laughs) And it's like, you should buy a lottery ticket that day. Yeah. it's tough to manage that. No, for sure. For sure. Um, so with your skiing background, how did you go from skiing into jujitsu? Not to switch the interview no, onto you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's a good question. Um, so jujitsu, jujitsu became the reason I asked so much about like your transitions from one to another is because skiing encapsulated every single aspect of my being when I was a kid. That is all I cared about. I went to bed watching videos about skier skiing and, and competitive mogul skiers and my idols. And I, all I thought about was how can I be like them? How can I train like them? What sacrifices can I make in my life? Can I get into the gym before kids my age are allowed in the gym? Like I did not care. I just wanted to be an Olympian. And when I decided when I was 18 to stop skiing, it was like nine spots from the U.S. team. And I saw very clearly there was like two ways my life could go. I could forego college and academics, and I could commit to doing this. And I knew roughly that timeline, the next two Olympic trial periods, you know all about that. It's just very, like, hectic, chaotic. It's pinpoint to these very specific windows of opportunity to make the team. And it's mogul skiing. There's, like, zero potential to earn a living, right? I mean, every (laughs) single skier at the time that was on, like, the USC or D team also was working at Home Depot because they did this uh, cooperation with the U.S. team to, like, offer jobs. And there was not a lot of opportunity. And then you're limited on your sponsor pool. So you can only have sponsors or the people that are bought into the contracts with the U.S. team. So you have no, like, endorsement opportunities. Very much like how you have to wear Venom in the USC now. You can't have, like, an external sponsor that's paying you out the back end. And so I was just like, what do I want to do? Like, how do I – how do I – keep moving and I decided to go to school full-time and then pursue just a career yeah but back to your question what happened was in doing that there was this big part missing in my life of like I love waking up and training and 
living that lifestyle, but I love doing it with a purpose. And I think like jujitsu gave me one, it knocked me on my ass in terms of my ego, who I thought yeah. I was completely. And I'd love to hear your story about this. Uh, and then it gave me a reason to train. Like now I want to get better at what I'm doing so that I can have like more time on the mats, get better endurance on the mats, better a skill. I think that like, just like your ability to develop skills as you get older and learn with your brain and your body at the same time are instrumental to longevity because so many people just stop and they just start sitting and they stop moving and like it's yeah. just a fall off but how did what was your initial this will actually be really interesting because you have such an elite athletic experience going into it what was it like when you got into jujitsu <laughs> um yeah i was in my peak half ironman uh like fitness level um and honestly, like my experience jumping into jujitsu is so similar to what you just described, where it's just this need to train really hard for something at all times, um, for no apparent reason. But um, yeah, like having this goal and, and feeling this need to just push your daily basis and having that. Um, my my ex was an MMA fighter, and he was the one who convinced me to do jujitsu in the first place. But I was training an insane amount for iron, like half iron mans. Um, I would train any, I'd train two sports a day and I would do anywhere between two to like four or five hours a day of training. And I was doing my master's degree at the time. So I'd spend like at least like seven, eight, nine hours in the lab also on top of that. So like Sounds my normal. totally normal, definitely had a social life. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I would, I'd wake up like my average day would be waking up at like 5.30, getting to the pool, swimming till 6.30, getting to my lab at 7.30, sitting there alone, looking at data on my computer and it's Canada. So the sun doesn't come and come up until like noon, not literally, but it's like 10.30. And then I might go for a run um, at lunch or if I have a bike later that day, I'll work through lunch, go home early, get my bike in, sit on my bike in my basement for two hours. It was just a very lonely sport. And especially yeah. doing it in Canada, it was extremely lonely when you have winter, like nine months, of the, months year. of the year, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 12 months out of the year. It has definitely snowed in May there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I um, I tried a jujitsu class out. I got kind of bullied into doing it by my ex. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll go to a class. And, um, very appreciative of the fact that he made me go to more than one gym. Um, so I went to two different gyms and I kind of liked the one more than the other. And I didn't really have any significant experience with it. Like, I don't know. I don't have much to tell you at this point. And I go about my life for another year. And then I hit this like extra peak loneliness Mm -hmm. deep into my, my first master's degree. And I realized like, I need more human interaction. And I was like, you're basically just studying 24 seven. You're in the lab doing research. You're just. Yeah. Exported from social settings. Yes. Like very little human contact other than when I was doing experiments on humans, which Mm -hmm. It's you know, not, not, not the best time to build friendships. No, I'm real. like, I'm like, hey, yeah. you can't leave for the next two hours, or you won't get credit. <laughs> no. Be my friend. 
Yeah. So yeah, jujitsu, like I just decided one day I was like, I'm going to do that jujitsu thing. And I went to a gym, the one that I liked that night before class started, I signed up and they're like trying to convince me not to sign up. They're like, shouldn't you do like like another trial class? And I'm like, no, no, take my money. I've decided I'm doing it. Take it. And, uh, yeah, I just started then like, and it was largely like the human contact aspect of it. I, I kind of knew I needed that and, you know, getting your back taken, getting cuddled. It's basically the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So this was all like basically relationships sparked (laughs) and of relationships were sparked jujitsu. It is funny. I was talking to, um, Robert Drysdale a couple of weeks ago about this. And he was saying that there's like this human, the contact element is a really, when you look back at even the history all the way back to like Japan, I mean, it, there is something there. I, I don't really know psychologically what it is that we're like drawn to about that, but that is undoubtedly an element of grappling. Yeah. Like scientifically and, you need human touch. Yeah. Like well, you need it that. for mental health. Yeah. <laughs> and no one said they couldn't be trying to strangle you at the same time. So <laughs> did you get, uh, like when you went in your first time, you get your ass whooped. Um, there was another woman there. So she was actually pretty nice to me. Starting jujitsu as a woman is a lot easier than starting a jujitsu as a man. Um, my husband and I own a jujitsu gym, so I yep. see this experience go very differently for the yep. genders, <laughs> uh, on the regular, but why, why is it, do you think that's because, you go in there as a dude and just like the machismo and the ego and people are like, fuck me, fuck you. I'm going to like destroy this guy or like a need to prove that this is tough. And like, no, a lot of dudes bring it on themselves. (laughs) They come in like if a guy comes in and they're like really chill and they just want to learn, like they have a great, great first class. But when they're like trying to prove jujitsu wrong, they do not have a fun time. That's my favorite because you see, this is one of the reasons I love jujitsu so much is you see in real time someone's loss of self. Like you see them think the world is one way and then in an instant they realize that it's not. Yes. And then you get to watch and see what they do with that mm-hmm. new realization. Yes. It's a very interesting thing to watch happen. Um and yeah, you do typically see it more with men coming into the sport. Um, most women kind of don't have that. I've, I've seen them have it a little bit, but yeah, you definitely see a much bigger ego break with men coming into jujitsu than women. When was the first time that you felt like you were really going like toe to toe with some girl at, at training? Probably. I don't know. If you asked me this a year ago, I would, like every time I, I check back, like I, I'd say like six months ago, but if you asked me six months ago, I'd say six months prior to that. Right. Um, it's one of those where you're, you know, like you look back on like how you were a year ago and you're like, Oh my God, that was terrible. Right. They were definitely letting me do that. But, um, yeah, I would say it's really been in the last like six to nine months that I felt like I finally have like that ability to kind of control roles a lot more mm-hmm. and to really understand what somebody else is trying to do and be able to help them in their role. Whereas prior to that, I didn't really have that ability yet. What was the, like the difference for you in, I th- I've just think about like physical exertion here. So if you have take like 
the spectrum of exertion and on one end is ultra marathon really is like pushing your body through something different you're guaranteed to sustain some sort of like overuse injury in the process of doing it that you <laughs> yeah. just have to deal with that's part of it um triathlons kind of in the middle like half marathons are intense you're really keeping a pace there so it's not like you're just loggy gagging through plus winning them really you're keeping a pace so you're actually pushing yeah. your like metabolic threshold and then if you go down to kind of like let's say your average day of training when you're doing three-ish five-minute rounds what's the the mental like preparation like in those for you and then actually maybe we talk specifically about competing for you because you have yeah. competed at blue belt which is competitive and you've won so it's not like we both know from competing that's it's not peanuts like when you're yeah. in a match you're going and it's much different than training you get the yeah. pump in your arms and your fingers hurt different and it's just like a different animal so yeah. what are those three different variations like for you they're completely different so anything that's endurance based it's about turning your brain off endurance when you say endurance you mean like ultra ultras yeah. yeah it's about turning your brain off and not listening to your body and jujitsu you can't do that so <clears throat> I actually really struggled with jujitsu at first because I had to turn my brain on like I had to start thinking and reacting and coordinating not just in a straight line um like it was quite challenging for me at first and the cardio is completely different swimming was kind of the only thing that it could relate to but you know I could train forever but I could train forever at like a flow roll pace or yeah. like a little bit more than that so all of like the intense moments like I was I was so tired yeah. I had never that's, been so physically see, exhausted in my life. That's that's fascinating to me. I was I was actually speaking with a running coach about this who does he helps OCR athletes and like mm. high rocks competitors and stuff like that. He trains um you probably know Hunter McIntyre is like a high level endurance crossfit guy. And he was talking about that like you can have variance in VO2 max abilities across different athletes and that would say x and y about their performance in an endurance setting. But jiu-jitsu is, is very unique because no matter what, unless it's a flow roll and it's like you guys are playing patty cakes or you're just like working on something, yeah, it's almost instantly anabolic. Or, anaer sorry, instantly anaerobic. anaerobic. Yeah. yeah. Like the second that you slap hands, if you're actually training and you're really going for it, you get up into that high heart rate instantaneously. And unless your body's really good at buffering that zone, you get stuck there and you're there for oh, yeah. five minutes. So like, yep. how long can you buffer an anaerobic window as a hobbyist, let alone like someone who's just going in for the first time. Right. Yeah. That's gotta be a huge smack in the face going from like running ultras or even triathlon where like you probably yeah. get more undulation in a triathlon. Right. Yeah, well, largely like the training, you're still doing a lot of anaerobic work. Mm -hmm. um, so I was still ahead of probably the average person coming into the sport, but it, it's just different. Like it's it's such a whole body thing, and then like when you move it into the gi, it's even more um, anaerobic. I it's just you can't describe how how intense that is. And that that to me is like the sauce. That right there yeah. is you can think anything about yourself. And this is really why I think jujitsu is, is so fantastic. You can be the 
best athlete, it can be run the longest distance, whatever it is, and you will just get sh- shown where you really are by doing it. Like it smacks you in the face really fast. Yeah. I remember like when I got into it, I, I've told this story a lot of times, so I'm not going to beat a dead horse, but I was very athletic. I, you know, I'd done a lot of training. I was currently training a lot and I went in and I just got like absolutely destroyed yeah. by someone a fraction of my size and was, I was just floored. I was like, I didn't get it how <laughs> it was so much harder. Yeah. I got beat up by like a hundred pound 10 year old. So yeah, I, I relate like, to you. <laughs> what did you, so what did you think when that happened? I was like, this is witchcraft. This is for sure witchcraft. Um, let's start weighing people. Do you weigh more yeah. than a duck? Like, <laughs> do you float in water? Um, she's a witch. How do we know she's a witch? <laughs> um, she floats. Like, I'm not a small woman. Like, I'm 5'11". And at the time, like, I was dense. Like, my legs were huge. Such, um, a, good way, such a good way to describe dense. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I had like 15 pounds on what I have now and of just muscle. And yeah, I couldn't believe like, I, I thought that like, if I got into an altercation, I would kind of be okay. And I realized as that child held me down on the ground that I would die in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> I was so screwed. Why? Okay, so I could give my answer for this again all day. But yeah. What about that? What about that specific experience made you curious? Like, why, it's care, just a why challenge. care about that? Right? It's just okay. a challenge. Like, I'm like, no. Yeah. Screw this child. I'm going to beat the shit out of this kid. <laughs> give me three years. <laughs> it's funny, like that, because that's a fork in the road, too. Right? Yeah. A lot, I think, and you see this, you own, you own a gym, so... You see people come in, they have that experience, and they go, absolutely not. Yeah. And you never see them again. Yes. Right? And you they're see like, that. nope. Yeah. That's or a huge decider. That first experience. Yeah. Okay, so here, here's an interesting question. As an owner, someone who's mm-hmm. actually concerned about, like, the business of it. Yeah. How do you, how do you manage that? How do you manage uh, that experience? Because at the end of the day if you owned a barbershop and every time someone came in, you just buzz the middle of their head, <laughs> like <laughs> you'd have no business yeah. ever. Right. So you got to give good haircuts. So how mm-hmm. do you bring people in, give them a powerful experience, not shoot your business in the foot and keep them coming back? Um, it's actually a simpler answer than what you think it's going to be. And it's, you don't want those people to sign up. Like the people that aren't here for it, aren't going to stay anyways. And, long-term they hurt the retention in your gym because they become time sucks for your existing clientele. Like we know that in jujitsu, we all help each other. And that's like a huge part of the culture. So when you have, you know, new white belts coming in and you're creating this atmosphere where they're wanting to join, you know, um, it's, not great when you've got like these upper belts that are helping them for months on end just to have them quit at three months when they're finally challenged. So it's kind of better that people know what the, what it is, like what jujitsu is. It's better that they know early on and then we can decide like, or they can make that decision of, yeah, I'm about this or no, I'm not about this. Um, It was actually something that I had to figure out with women 
was I really wanted women to obviously join and train. Um, and I would baby them a lot when they first came in. Yeah. <laughs> and cause I, I didn't want them. I wanted them join. Hold on half a second. I've got people coming in. No, we'll pause for one yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. Are you guys able to go to the back? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I'll just write on this 22. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it was a big issue with bringing women into the gym because I would baby them as they came in. Cause I didn't want them to have a bad experience. I didn't, I wanted them to stay. I wanted them to train. I really wanted female training partners. And then what would happen is the first time they had to work with a man or the first time that they really got physically pushed, they were like, Oh, this is horrible. I don't want to do this. And I would be heartbroken, of course, because this like little baby white belt I've tried to raise for two or three months that I've given all my time to has quit. It's like the 18th right. one. And um, yeah, so I learned that lesson is actually really important with women is like, like let them let them have it first. Let them get the experience. Uh, yeah, like I'm not going to beat them up, but like I want them to roll as early as possible their first class I'll work with them or another woman will work with them. And then their second class, they, they work with a man. Like they work with one of like the black belts or the brown belts, because if they're not comfortable with that, like the reality of the sport is it's male dominant and you're going to have to train with men. You're going to have to work with men. It is, it uh, is what it is for right now. Right. I I mean, thankfully, like, I, I think it's awesome that people like yourself have a, you know, like you have a platform where you can talk about jujitsu and, it contrasts against the other elements of your life. And this is like something that people can do. I think a lot of times, well, it's a, it's a double-edged sword because you want jujitsu to stay jujitsu. You don't want it to yeah. become really watered down and, and easy. And, and like, like Robert said, you know, like uh, karate board breaking, like that's yeah. useless. It's so dumb. And it got watered down over time and it became that. And so you want jujitsu to have the grit and you want it to have the toughness so you kind of have to foster it the way that you are. It seems like you've you've been able to like go through and experience that and see the downside of it. So now, yes, <laughs> you kind of have like a protocol for new female members. That kind of is the protocol. Is like we'll have like um, you know if they're if they're bigger, like I'll work with them, or if they're smaller, they'll work, work with one of the upper belt women that are on the smaller end and, you know, they have like a good first day. We try to encourage them to do some, um, like we usually do situational training, live training on whatever position we just did. So we encourage them to do that. And then if they come back for a second class, I have them work with like one of the black or the brown belts, um, one of the men though. And, you know, if they like that experience where they're, they're not too sensitive about that, then, yeah, they typically say like the retention for the women is very, very high after that, but the sign up rate is really low. Are, uh, do you run any kind of like women self-defense class, like women exclusive classes or anything like that? So I run a women's competition training class. I did a, okay. a self-defense class for a while and it was just the jujitsu women showing up. Um, <laughs> everybody always asks for self-defense classes and then like, you'll run them for free and you'll pay to advertise them and no one comes. Yeah. It's always so frustrating. So I just, I run a women's competition training 
and because I'm a blue belt, so me like leading other women um, would mm. kind of be like asking a nine year old to babysit a six year old, like. Right. <laughs> like you're you're very aware of where you are in your oh yes yeah, yeah. yes yeah, like I should not be instructing people without an asterisk beside everything right, right but you know anyone can kind of not anyone but you can run competition training pretty easily like you're not having to teach techniques you're teaching like all right we're gonna start in whatever position and this is well, how you and win. I think there's like from a competitive understanding there's a lot of values that someone like yourself could add from I I honestly think that a lot of competition is the mental side of it. Like yeah. most people that are training when they go to their first competition, they forget a lot of their training. And then what they're really faced with is I'm here for the first time in a competitive environment. Who am I and what do I do? And it's like yes. that you'll, they'll actually get beat by themselves a lot more frequently than they get beat by their competitor. Yep. And so just learning how to be a competitor, how to be, in a discomfort, like in discomfort and stay there and work through it? Or what does it feel like when your heart rate, when you're used to training and your heart rate's only 145 and then you go yeah. to your first competition, it's 170. Well, how are you going to handle that? Are you going to panic and have a panic attack? Cause that's not going to help yeah. anyone. Or can you learn that? And, and the mental side, like the mental aspect is I think one of the most valuable things and having people with pre-existing athletic history come highly competitive you can shed a lot of light on that for people. Did they, yeah. did they ever ask you about that side of it? Um, they do. So honestly, my husband loves coaching. Um, so he's the black belt that owns the gym. And I also like love science. I love applying my background to coaching. So he reads all these coaching books and then I come in and I kind of push the science on him and it makes for a really cool combination of just really like training sets and practice sets, but we find people don't really come and ask us a lot of questions because we're very open about what strategies we're doing and why we're doing them. So for example, one of the drills I have, um, <clears throat> is we'll do kind of like this drill where you're starting in a sweep position. Like the person swept. No. So you're starting at the the point where you would initiate the sweep. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Person being swept is going to allow this bottom person to sweep them. Mm-hmm. The minute they touch the ground, both people are fighting. So the person who did the sweep is fighting to get those points and to hold that person down, pin them, get the points. Um, and the person that has been swept is fighting to get back up, to get to a position where that other person is not collecting those points and they're getting to a dominant position because it's such a critical component in a match. And it's such a critical, critical component in a role is when you get swept, typically like that's the worst time to get past, or it's the best time to pass somebody is after you've swept them. And if you can't recover in that moment, that can be the end of the match. Like that's huge. Do you feel like I was actually, I'm glad you segued into this anyway because I I did want to touch on like your understanding of psychology your your academic research and then also conflict management because obviously jujitsu is like conflict (laughs) management meets psychology meets performance so in a way it's kind of like you guys are cheating with your instruction because you have you know that skill and pedigree of your husband and then also your understanding of like how the brain actually takes in 
new information and yeah. catalogs it and memorizes it. Because we know that in jujitsu, you're getting a lot of people because of its popularity that are that are taking this on later in life, right? Of, of course, yeah. you have the kids' classes and the high school athletes and people that want to, you know, they idolize world-class competitors and they want to be like that, you know, much like myself when I was skiing. And you have an opportunity to dive into the psychology side of it and yeah. really focus on the teaching and learning aspect. So what are some of the things that you feel like you purposefully try to address that take advantage of the knowledge that you have in academia and then apply it to a mat setting? Yeah. So probably the biggest thing, um, that I've taken from my academic background and applied in, and I actually made a video about this on Instagram, but it's focusing on error based learning. So error like E R R O R. Um, not and like that's error on the side of caution. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's like how you're learning off of making mistakes and mm -hmm. you know, our brain can learn motor skills in like roughly four different ways. So you've got like error-based learning, use-dependent learning. So that's like just repeating something over and over again. You have reinforcement learning. So that's, you know, I did this move and then I, I got to like the place that I wanted to get to. So yay, reward. Um, and then there's strategy, which is you don't necessarily have a plan, but you're understanding the concepts of what you need to do to get to where you need to be. So kind of more of black belt there. It's, it's funny. I hearing you say this and we're going to dive on this. This is wonderful. You see those people, the different, yes. like that last one, um, strategy learning. Yeah. That sticks out a lot because you know, that person that, uh, ask ton constantly is just asking questions about yeah. like, well, if, but then if they do this, what about that? So they're like, they're thinking about the, the connected dots all the way through to the end. And so they, yeah. that's how they envision the rolling. That's really interesting. Yeah. And those are the people that take big concepts in jujitsu and they don't necessarily need to know like exactly what the movement is or what, mm -hmm. what the sequence is that they need to do, but they understand the concept of what they have to get done. Gotcha. So they understand I need to conceptually, like, I need to get this hip on the ground conceptually. I need to cover the body conceptually i need to control like the hip to control the knee line like right. and whether they're doing it in a standard way or not doesn't really matter as long as that concept is fulfilled so are you trying to assess like when you have a room full of people yeah do you do you try to assess like maybe what kind of learning styles exist within that room and then cater some of that drill to it or is it more of like a pull aside and address it throughout so all humans use all four of those strategies for motor learning like but it's kind of like there's certain ones that are going to be better for people when they're starting out and then there's other ones that are better for people later on so for example in early learning error-based learning is extremely important and it's extremely important so people don't create bad habits when they do repetition learning so when you have somebody just drill the same thing over and over again, they develop bad habits in that movement within two days, like permanent. But that's not to say that repet like, cause I'm a big fan, for example, of repet, yeah. like yeah. give me a guard passing drill and tell me to do it a hundred times. And I yeah. love it because yeah. I'm all about the like autonomous 
control of my body and not thinking about things when I'm doing them. So that's yeah. not to say that it's you not want to eliminate those. No, no. Right. It's just, it should be a little bit less of a focus early on. Sorry, I'm having to plug something in here. No, you're There we go. Um, yeah, it's, it's just like. BPS action for everybody. <laughs> it's just a little bit less of uh, an efficient way of learning early on. Um, so, and it makes sense because like, if you have a white belt and you show them this movement, they have no real feedback neurologically on whether they're doing totally. it correctly. Yeah. And so it's just going to be chaos. Well, um, and this is, this is super true for strength and conditioning as well. Like if you took a movement, let's choose something very simple, like a squat that everyone does when they get out of their chair yeah. and you had someone with poor mechanics, you don't make that person do 500 squats. But yeah. if you have a really skilled high level athlete, now you can program higher repetition. You can train muscular endurance. You could change the loading and the intensity and all that stuff. So it makes total sense that you're not saying eliminate that way of learning. Just no. time it well in their, like in the path of their total time doing. The yes, learning. use your tools essentially appropriately. Out of out of curiosity, does yeah. error-based learning need a consequence? Like if if you and I are rolling and I go to sweep you and I don't have my knee in the right place, and instead I get my guard passed, does that guard passing consequence of the error have to exist? No. For the learning thing to occur? No. So that will end up falling into one of the other ways, which is reinforcement. So reinforcement gotcha. is all about like the outcome. But the distance that you're traveling to get to that outcome doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter how you okay. got there. It just cares about the outcome. So you can start to yep. see how these overlap, though, right? Like For sure. Well, and how they're present always. The, the, it's a big Venn diagram, right? It's like yes. a four-quadrant Venn diagram, and you're in the middle always doing some aspect of it. Yes. Like, it's all messy, and they're not discrete, separate of each other. So there's always going to be overlap. Um but you can definitely be pushing for one strategy over the other during drilling or as you're trying to learn. So we've got this error based of feeling how something should feel or predicting how something should feel and then it not feeling that way. So figuring out, okay, what do I need to change in this sequence or this movement to make it accurate? You've got reinforcement, which is, okay, I'm going to do a sweep. This should result in them falling. <laughs> oh, they're not falling. Okay. Or, oh, they fell. Cool. I did it. Um, use dependent, which is just repetition. So that's just, I've done this thing over and over and over and over again. Um, and then you have strategy, which is understanding more the broader concept of what you need to do within a movement to accomplish a goal. So big concepts there. In real time. In real time. Yeah. So how do you, like, if you get a new student, let's say, and you see that they're struggling in acquisition, like, part of this is jujitsu takes time. Yes. Right? That's part of the beauty of it is, like, you have to, a black belt has done a lot of jujitsu. They've trained for a long time. And there's a lot of benefits intrinsically and extrinsically that come from that. And there's yeah. a lot of learning that happens along the way. So... It, to some respects, I almost like don't like the idea of gamifying the learning because it seems like uh, maybe like un jujitsu. But yeah. then at the same time, being like, you know, professionally being a trainer and then someone who's just like, I love movement and patterns and biomechanics and learning. And like, I love teaching someone something that they, 
they don't know how to move a certain way yeah. and you can reverse engineer it and then get them to do it and then get them to do it with speed or power or strength. Yeah. And so to that, I kind of love it. Like, how do you find the balance when you're working with someone or you guys get a new student and they're struggling with this, like of, of keeping that jujitsu essence and then sprinkling on some of the academic knowledge that you have? Yeah. So to answer this question, like you can kind of never get away from this. Like you're either acknowledging it and doing it on purpose or it's just happening as a consequence of how you're choosing to teach. So I kind of view it as like, why wouldn't you take the reins on it? Um, like jujitsu traditionally is very use dependent. So it's very, let's drill this one movement over and over and over again. Um, and then from there on, it's very reinforcement based. So it's now we're going to roll. It either works right. or it doesn't. If it doesn't work, you're doing it wrong. If it works, you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah. Um, which unfortunately are like the two worst options for somebody learning early on. They're like the two best options for somebody later in their jujitsu career. Right. So, so how do you think that new, like, how do you think learning should be introduced? introduced to new yeah so early somebody who's early learning a motor skill there are two number one uh methods that are going to contribute most to learning so learning uh in this case being defined as the ability to take in or practice a movement and to be able to execute it later and execute it appropriately so uh when it should be applied right. so the number one is actually strategy. So in this case, that's really explaining in jujitsu conceptually why something works. So not like big just, picture. yeah, big picture. And, you know, like if your very simple concept is covering the body. So if you're inside control, you can't just control like the same side of the body and expect that they're not going to like shrimp away or move away like you need something on the other side of the body whether that's your arm whatever um so explaining these components as you're teaching jujitsu is really critical for early learners um and it can really streamline their process of understanding things long term because now well, they, they just take that concept and run with it well and that's a I mean, that's an advantage for anyone, right? Because if you have people that are not picking things up, it's going to be very unfun Yes. in reality. Like yeah. jujitsu becomes fun as you acquire more skills to use yeah. or decide which ones are most pragmatic in certain situations. But if you're not getting any of that and all you're getting out of it is you end up on side control bottom and someone's shoulder in your face all the time your motivations to continue are probably going to diminish over time. Absolutely. Or you're going to get hurt. And then when you get hurt, like when you get injured in jujitsu, your motivation to train has to be really high. Yeah. And I get injured all the time because I, I push it. But when yeah. it happens, I'm so motivated to fix it. Yeah. And like do whatever I have to do to get back on the mats that that's a really important part of it because at the end of the day, it's unpredictable. And like you're going to sustain injuries that you don't want or think, you know, your neck's going to get cranky just because yeah. the way that jujitsu is. And so if you don't have a desire to come back or a desire to get back out there, you're going to have a lot of opportunities to walk out the door. Absolutely. And then as a business owner, on top of that, like you want your students to learn quickly. You want them to feel success early. 
um, you want them to enjoy it and they often enjoy it when they experience success early. So exactly that, like why not streamline this early process? Um, kind of no point in putting them through like the struggle bus just cause you, you had guys, to go through it. Do you separate, um, Com- people with competitive aspirations and the rest of the students? Yes and no. So all of our main classes, um, we, we have a com- like a competition team. And that comp team trains exclusively just us on Sundays. But yeah. there's like we've got athlete contracts and there's certain expectations of us. And that is like each of us have an assigned white belt. And so during main classes, we're expected to work with our white belt at least like once a week um, and help them because obviously teaching is a huge part of understanding jujitsu like as well. It's like almost. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we have, and then we have like competition training class, which anyone can come to, but is mostly people from our comp team. Um, we've got two comp classes and yeah, you see like, we only have the one class that really separates the group, but beyond that, like everything is all mixed together. That's interesting. So when you say athlete contract to clear that up, what I imagine it would be is this is like an agreement amongst yourselves of like values that you're going to uphold for each other. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's really and, interesting. And for the coaching too, like, Because it's like, okay, if I'm going to film study, like, every person in your bracket and I'm going to film, spend hours film studying, like, your matches, this isn't me. This is my husband who would be doing this. He's like, then I need to know that you're, like, lifting. I need to know that you're drilling. I need to know that you're watching instructionals. Like, it's going to be a give and take. I mean, I geek out on that kind of – I think that that's so cool because I remember – yeah, when I got – when I was introduced to training, there was – so I I had this really horrible experience as – a young athlete and it stuck with me my whole life. And I think it was really like one of those chips on my shoulder that shaped a lot of my behaviors as I got older. I had the very unique opportunity to work with an Olympic silver medalist with two other athletes. And he was going to run our assessments, our entire training protocol through the whole summer, our off season training, our, our conditioning, everything acrobatic trampoline, water ramp training, like the whole nine. And it was really, really special to be invited into this. And I was like over the moon. I didn't respect how much like was being given to me in that moment. And this athlete was, you know, at the time I was a 17 year old kid and I didn't, I didn't respect that they were volunteering their time to help a few of us really take it to the next level. And I was young and I was in high school and I had like, I wanted to hang out with my friends, but I still, I wanted to be a competitive athlete. And like, I kept thinking about that all the time. And it actually got to a point I had missed. So it it was a violation of the athlete contract is why I bring this up. And I failed to uphold my end of the bargain, which was that I would have 95% training consistency, which is like, you basically can miss one session all summer due to a family event is what he allotted for, which is insane. Yeah, that's really high. But at the same time, to have that coaching opportunity was really impactful. Yeah. And I got a personal email that asked me to step out of the program. And you can only imagine as a competitor when like it was such a devastation to me, but at the same time, 
it was a very clear line in the sand that I knew I messed up. It was no one else but me that I violated this person's time and I didn't respect that. Yeah. And as a result, I had I had to work the rest of the summer to basically prove my my belonging within that group of people. Yeah. And it was like it was devastating. But having those kind of agreements between each other is it's like a very powerful thing. I, I actually surprised that more places don't and maybe they do they implement something like that. Whose idea was it to utilize something like an athlete contract? It was my husband's. <laughs> it's genius. Was he? Did he have that type of exposure with his coaches in the past? Uh, no, but he had been reading a ton of coaching books, and um, I can't remember which book it was he was reading. But it was a football coach. It's probably a very famous one. I'm Canadian, so unless it's hockey, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and um, fair. Yeah, it was just something that this coach had done with um, these college football players was he was like, no, like, this is what I expect of you. Like, I have these very high expectations. And if you want to be on my team and you want to do this, like, it's going to be more than just fitness and just playing football. It's developing you as a person so that you can excel at those things. Um, and so that's something that we try to do is like, like he's worked so hard to bring all these people together and have this mutual respect for each other's goals that like, we feel guilty when we like don't get our drilling in because it shows, or we feel guilty when we don't get training in because we're letting our partners down. Yes. Like you're not now challenging your training partner and each person um, we call it the project. Each person in the project has like kind of a counter person in, in the project. So somebody who's a good training partner for them, size and skill wise. And yeah, you feel really bad when you start to slack and you're no longer challenging that person. I think for, for people like ourselves that are, you've excelled in an individual sport. You can have respect, of course, for the team that is involved with something like an ultra marathon, where like those are instrumental people. But at the end of the day, you're doing the bulk of the grunt work, right? You're running. Yeah. You're the one whose body's being pushed to the limit. Skiing's the same way. It's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I got to ski the run. Yes. And all the coaching's done. And same with jujitsu. I got to show up for the competition and I have to be the one in the match putting everything there against my opponent. Yeah. But the unique thing about the training environment for jujitsu practitioners is that it's so reliant on another person oh, to, yeah. to develop your skill. And that's yeah. when you're a self-motivated driven person, it's a very weird thing to start to lean on. Absolutely. Because if that person's not doing their work, it devalues your efforts and, vi- and vice versa, a hundred percent. Yeah. And you know, the second, that things start to slip. Yeah. Um, Jiu-Jitsu is such an interesting sport in that regard because it is not a team event, but it is impossible without a team. That's like the mic drop moment, but it's (laughs) very true, right? Like it is, you have to have individual motivations and that aspect of your psychology must be present to even continue training at all. Yeah. But to actually get better, you need people that are at or slightly better than you are 
to push you through those different stages. So it's almost yeah. like the pacer joining you on legs of the run, except they've also been running the entire thing. Yes. <laughs> what, exactly. do you, what do you think? What do you think? Ju- like, what has jujitsu taught you that the other sports that you've dabbled in didn't? That's such a great question. Um, You know, with jujitsu, and I'm going to have this same answer that a lot of women have, it's completely changed who I am as a person in my day-to-day, how I interact with people, and it's really changed how I interact with men on a day-to-day basis. Um, Interesting. And that's been, like, the biggest impact is the confidence that it's given me. And it it's weird because, like, I would have never thought that this would be something that I would be talking about prior to doing jiu-jitsu. Right. But, yeah, it's just this, like, kind of... Sometimes men are really intimidating physically, and they use that. And I just, now, since doing jiu-jitsu and gaining this confidence, like... It's like not falling to that. So a good example is like a lot of times when like men are walking on sidewalks and as a, as a woman, if you're walking, like they won't move out of the way for you. As like a flex? I don't know. Um, it's just so, something. Some guys that are so fucking weird. It's man. really weird. And now I'll just like fucking body them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like I'm yes. like, sure. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> Does it hurt me? Yeah, but I don't care at that point. Like, I'm just like, no, I'm not going to walk on the grass. Like, you've got two people. Like, walk behind for one second. Um, That's so, like... I think women are just, like, very considerate of other people all the time. Like, we're we're taught from a very young age to be very, uh, like, compliant, nice, don't hurt other people's feelings, don't make other people feel uncomfortable, like, very aware of how other people are feeling. And as a result, we kind of we shrink a lot and jujitsu kind of taught me like, Hey, you don't need to shrink. Like just be you like, take the space up that you take up and don't allow somebody to get into that. Um, but yeah, it's just such a, like a unique and powerful experience. And also a really like, that's such a strange, it, it, it's not, it's not straight. Like your insight isn't strange, but like hearing that, just thinking about like, what's going on in that dude's life where he needs to like shoulder check, like your inability to, to move out of the way in a sidewalk or like, it's not even like a chivalry thing. It's just what's wrong with you, dude. Like, and, and it's probably not just with women. It's probably also men too. Right. Like to just need to take, you've, you said it very well with the taking up space. Like that's such a, that's an the taking up space is a really interesting psychological concept because to fill the space around you is like a confidence thing. Yes. And to recognize the difference between a you know a point in your life when you can reflect on not doing that and now feeling like you are doing that, it's a it's almost like an arbitrary concept because it's spatial, but Yeah. It's really cool to hear that that that's like a a a benefit of jujitsu, an unknowing benefit of jujitsu that you didn't anticipate that you would glean from it. Yeah. And when you think about it, like I want you to think about jujitsu chicks that have trained for a long, long time. 
Like, those women are intimidating, man. <laughs> They'll fuck you up. They're so bold. Like, you'll be talking to them, and they just don't care. Like, they're not going to laugh at your jokes if they don't find it funny. Like, they're so bold. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about the, the women that have trained since they were, like, 12. Yeah. They don't care it about anything. Point. I, um... Do you know who Liz Carmouche is? Yes. So, when I first moved down to North County in San Diego... I was checking out which gyms I wanted to go to. And this was when the 10th planet Oceanside was before they had moved, but it was like, I mean, that means nothing to you, but it, at the time it was like 30 minutes from my house. It was too far. It ended up being too far, but I went and I did a trial class there. And when I walked in, Liz was at the counter. She would have no idea about this, but um, I walked up and I like, I introduced myself and I was very, you know, very chill. I'm like just here for like a trial class. Yeah. And her, her, just her presence, like, at the time that that happened, I actually didn't know who she was, mm. but I left that day and I was like, who the fuck was that? Like they just, you know what I mean? Like just the yes. way that she stood there, um, aside from like the cauliflower and everything, but just like who, the way that she was about herself was just so on her two feet sturdy. And yeah. I walked away and I was like, damn, who is that? And then I looked up, I was like, oh, that makes total that sense. Makes sense. Like, She's just a, a badass, but it, it, I think in the same way that it has given you that experience, it's been really special to see that happen to just anyone in jujitsu too. They come yeah. in, um, you can just tell it. It's kind of like you said, you can tell like the ego dudes that walk in that are like there to prove something and get, and they get the floor mopped with themselves. And then they're like, what the hell? Yeah. There's also people that come in that are, are like truly afraid or they do lack that confidence or they're unsure and, and, you don't know what's going on in school or in their personal life or anything like that. And you, you physically watch a transformation happen. And it's yes. like, it is the most powerful, cool thing to see someone come out on the other side of that. Like, hell yeah, dude. Yeah. Like maybe they're not a superhero. They're going to start fighting crime every night, but like they are a new person Yeah. that just didn't exist before for however yes. many years they were alive. They just didn't exist. You, uh, you reminded me of this story. So we have, um, guy that trained with us, uh, until he like moved away, but he, um, he was a NFL linebacker for the Vikings and he started jujitsu, like literally the month after he, he retired from the NFL. Wow. This man's like, he's a, he was a starter. Like he's, he was very he's big. A freak athlete. Yes. Freak athlete. And, um, one of our guys, this like 40 year old father of three, <laughs> double legged this NFL player and took him down. Like, wow. I want that, that was life changing for both of them. <laughs> <laughs> like, this, this ex NFL player is like a nearly middle aged man just took me down. That's wild, first of all. And then this so middle aged man is like, was the, the skill level was, it was his like kind of first time, but this other per the middle-aged dad, whatever had obviously been like, he knew a thing or two as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I think he was a purple belt. And then the other guy was like still early on in his training. Like it wasn't his first day, but, um, yeah, actually another funny story, not to segue too much, but on his first day, my husband who like also played football and played it into college and stuff. So he's big, 
in America or Canada? Because America, you know, Canada, no. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're just throwing Canadian, snowballs really at each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and like my husband wrestled, and at the time I think he was a brown belt or in the end of his purple belt days, and yeah, he said they're rolling, and he's like, "Oh my god, I have to make this like six foot seven man believe jujitsu is real. This is gonna right. be wild." <laughs> And I think like he ends up wrestling him to the ground and he's on top of the ex NFL player and he's in North South and the guy literally like grabs his gi pants, stands up <laughs> with two, a 230 pound man on him. Like he basically did a Romanian like deadlift or, or, or a Romanian get up, whatever it is. Yeah. Turkish get up. Turkish get up. I'm like, I don't know. It's one of one of the Baltic countries. Um, but just gets up. (laughs) Just because he was like, like, absolutely not. Well, he was just like, I should I stand up here? Like, it seems like I shouldn't stay here. So I just stand up with the person, right? Like, this is what uh, I do. That's funny. Craig Jones always said jujitsu doesn't work when you stand up. It's like (laughs) it's it's true. Uh it's funny on on that point. So even at this I've been doing jujitsu now like five years ish. Yeah. The whatever purple belt. I just really enjoy it. But there's still like I'll go in and I'm still surprised all the time at the effectiveness against much bigger people. Yeah. And conversely, I'm surprised by the effectiveness of how much smaller people than me can just destroy me. So like we'll get, you know, a, a you can have a brand new really big ex athlete or something white belt with no skill and you come in and this happens like periodically throughout your time doing jiu-jitsu. You just witness it in real life. You see it happen where this really big strong person is just out out in the ocean by themselves with no idea what to do. Yeah. And then I'll go in and like you know, I train all the time. I spend as much time as I can at the academy and I'll go in and there's we have many black belts and brown belts that I outweigh and I'm probably quicker than and they just throttle me. Yeah. And I still like it's almost like I still don't believe it. It just every time I see it happen, I'm still like, geez, this it really does work. Like it, it kind of floors me. Yeah. It it is absolutely crazy. Like such a cool sport where you can see that happen. Of course, like strength and size does play a role. Like when you're you're beating somebody that's that much bigger than you, your skill levels obviously has to be much greater than right. theirs, but it's still wild to see happen. Yeah. When did, uh, when did you start to introduce, I'll talk a little bit about like social media and, and content, that crazy, that world ethos. Yeah. The world that exists there. Um, when did you start to introduce like jujitsu related, content because you found a very interesting vein of like you have a good sense of humor as a base which i think is important for like when things are funny they people like to share them yeah and so you're like your willingness to be funny and comedic is i mean it's like in your bio right like you're just it's more my willingness to be not funny (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) and mixed with like very legitimate athletic endeavors and accolades and all this stuff so like when did you sprinkled jujitsu in there and was like oh this kind of like this is hitting the mark and people are finding this interesting 
Yeah. So, uh, I never like wanted to do social media. It happened by accident. Um, a friend of mine does it as her job and I hung out with her for a while and a bunch of her followers just trickled over from her tagging me. And I was in grad school at the time and yeah, I started to get sponsorship deals for cool stuff in triathlon, like wheels and those are expensive. So I was like, yeah, like 800, let's do this. This is great. Yes. So then I dove into the triathlon world and then I actually got really interested in doing social media and Mm -hmm. I started to find it to be really fun. And I really enjoyed it since it's kind of switched over to videos because I have this opportunity to make really funny content, but I had all these followers that were triathletes and then I picked up this new sport and I didn't know what to do with it. Like, I was like, do I post about this? Like, do I, how do I put this in here? And so I would sprinkle it in here and there. Um, and I was only training two days a week at first. So it was like a part of my life, but it wasn't huge. And then it started to snowball and I started to post it more, but what was happening was like I started losing followers because of it. And I was like, okay, fair. Yeah. Like you didn't come here to follow me for right, jujitsu. jiu-jitsu. You content. came here for yeah. triathlon. Um, so I kind of scaled it back for a while, but through COVID and not being able to race, like do triathlon yeah. as much. Um, I started training jujitsu a lot more and sorry. Do you lose video for a second there? No. Okay. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Yeah, I started to train jujitsu a lot more. And so I obviously then needed to, like, I, I was like, this is weird that I'm just keeping a part of my life separate from it this. Is. And I just started integrating it in more. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to try and, like, cater my online platform to something that, like, is just not who I am. And I just kind of accepted that maybe like what happens happens either I lose followers or I gain the people that want to be there for that style of content and what I'm posting about and it's gone super well like I've I've been really pleasantly surprised by the amount of triathletes that have messaged me being like hey I'm gonna try jujitsu because you like just seen you post about it or like people in jujitsu wanting to start triathlon it's been very very cool that's a cool part about it is that like there's other people like you, you know, like there's other people that have, and, and I think jujitsu yeah. does answer this question for a lot of people. Like we talked about earlier, it's um, I'm looking for an Avenue or an outlet to express myself. And I don't want to do CrossFit or like, I don't want to do this. Like, yeah. And it doesn't have to just cause of the extremes, but it's like, where's a place where I can take this athletic prowess and like try something out. And then for the other, the intangibles that you talked about, just with like confidence and self-worth and like all these things, that's huge. And yeah. the reality is that like triathlon's probably not going to give that to people the way that jujitsu can give that to no. people. It might be enriching to accomplish a goal and say, I am not a triathlete. And then I set out and I, I did this. And that's awesome yes. because goal accomplishment and self-efficacy are really important for confidence. But yeah, the difference between that and the physicality of jujitsu and how it can help you and then them seeing that this is one of the reasons that i think i have a very strange relationship with social media but i think that one of the great things is that is someone else who has no reason to walk into an academy is going to see danny doing this and your experience as an athlete and go 
maybe I can do that. Yeah, why not? And, and, yeah. and what if that experience, them going and doing it, is like a life-changing moment for them? Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. It's, I don't get to see a lot of that. And when I do, it genuinely makes me so happy. I've probably the, the thing that you're talking about that I've experienced where it's, it's brought me the most happiness was sometimes I'll have people message me and tell me about how they showed their daughter or their niece, my account and that their niece or daughter started jujitsu and that they love it. And they're just changing so much because of it. And that's crazy to me that (laughs) like, that's that's wild, but I does influence it feel like, somebody. Does it feel like imposter syndrome? Yeah, 100% like, of the time. How do you deal with that? Uh, so I'm pretty used to it with academia because uh, so doing like my master's degree, I was doing my own research and you're constantly talking to people that are so much smarter than you all the I, time. Yeah, Like crazy intelligent people and you're telling them about your research and they're asking you questions and giving you respect and you just learn to slightly overcome imposter syndrome but also to be like so we're all doing this (laughs) none of us know what we're talking about right okay great um and yeah I kind of just take that same path with Instagram of you know what I'm just I'm just gonna do this right my my um one of my old roommates is uh he's a professor of economics at NYU and he he is the smartest person I know at all like so overwhelmingly yes. intelligent that like I wonder sometimes what it's like for him to live in the world and just be surrounded by imbeciles constantly yeah and I was talking to him one day about um what that's like and he was he was talking about the other faculty at NYU that he's surrounded by. And he was touching on exactly this. He's like, you know, I'll go to a conference and I'll talk to people about my research. And I'm, he's like, I'm aware of, you know, my intelligence level. I know that I'm smart. Obviously, I wouldn't be where I was if I wasn't. But when I get around these people, I'm like, I see the range of like, you know, it would be, it's like me hanging out with a, a AI computer or something. He's yeah. like, that's, that's what it feels like to be surrounded by them. And it, it's good because it up it levels up the quality and the credibility of academia but it's yes. also wild for me to hear that there's people that make him feel like he's not the smartest guy in the room yeah and i'm like that's just wild <laughs> and academia is really interesting because uh kind of just how research works you're typically narrowed down to such a very specific subject mm-hmm. like with my research i was the first person in the world to study what i studied it was a very niche little little tiny specific thing and so when I speak about it like I, like I'm they would listen right <laughs> like these really right. highly intelligent people would <laughs> yeah. be listening to me talk about this right and like that is wild so academia is really weird because yeah you can be surrounded by these people that are so much smarter than you and you know their accolades you know what they've done like they're just superhumans, and yeah they're giving you the respect of knowing what you're talking about in your field and you're just like 
So let's uh, you shouldn't let's be. Con- <laughs> let's let's contrast that real quick with the <laughs> trolls and everything. Like, what oh. does it feel like to go from being in an academic setting where you're doing exactly that? You're talking to people that you respect. You're talking to people that know more than you. They're validating what you're studying, what you're curious about. Maybe some of the areas that where you're unsure, but you're trying to get clarity on. And then what is it? What's that contrasted with like? because you are exposing yourself to these people right by being on social media being on a platform putting out ideas opinions things whatever you're welcoming it Mm -hmm. so (laughs) what is that like what what do you hear from these people what's kind of like your your conversations with them if they ever go there yeah so it can be a very frustrating process so I've just kind of just started talking about you know, my science and talking about these, these topics that I've spent like a decade of my life researching. (laughs) And it can be very difficult because you're having some of these great conversations where people are asking you, you know, realistic questions and they're, they're genuinely interested and they're not asking because they want to try and prove you wrong. But then you get like this 10% that comes in and they're like, they're just so entitled to trying to like, or it it seems like they feel so entitled to knowing more information from you, like demanding it, demanding you just basically qualify yourself over and over and over again. Like they're trying to prove you wrong. They're not there to learn and they don't want to learn from you. Um, Probably the most frustrating thing I deal with and I still haven't figured out how to handle it is, um, you know, working in research, like doing scientific research is, is not clean. Um, and it has to be, well, that, this is an important, like getting things wrong is a feature of science. It is not a bug. Yes. And people don't (laughs) get that. Yeah. People seem to like really dislike scientists and really try to discount research a lot um but they take it way too far so they'll be like oh well that was done in a lab under all these very specific conditions and i'm like yes that's how we can analyze the data and it be clean otherwise we have all these other effects so like yeah i had people that the comment that i kept getting was well none of this research was done on jiu-jitsu and i'm like yeah because jiu-jitsu has like a thousand different variables that could come in and like muddy the data like some of like the coolest research on motor learning is done with like golf or um basketball but for the most part it's like somebody moving a computer mouse like you know when somebody's in an fmri machine where they can't move much they can't be rolling (laughs) like they can't even move a millimeter of course they're not doing jujitsu for this I think with what people might fail to understand is like the way that your body learns a skill is a pretty, it's like an as is situation mm-hmm. there. You like you have a brain, you have a skeleton, you have a muscle system and you have a nervous system and all four of those things interact with each other to acquire new skills, whether it's a baby learning how to sit up and crawl across the room or roll onto its back or an adult trying to master a golf swing in their forties the 
the underlying principles exist. Yeah. It's how we learn. And so you can argue about like the, the expression of where that happens and when, and sure you, you can't take <laughs> two jujitsu practitioners and put them in a lab in a vacuum and have them like repeat the same role over and over again. But that doesn't discount the fact that if you are in an academy setting and you're acquiring new moves, new skills, new muscle patterns, those are happening in certain ways. Yeah. And there's of course intricacies to things like, there are different types of motor movements that you do learn slightly differently and research is exploring those as best they possibly can. But one of the points that I tried to make is like some of the, the research I was talking about was directly comparing, um, this new style of learning. It's not even new. It's been done since the seventies and is utilized across like a ton of sports, but this other style of learning compared to, you know, like repetition-based learning, which we often do in jujitsu, and it directly compared that to repetition learning. So it's directly looking at the comparison. And yeah, I'd have like these people arguing with me, but not really making a point on anything. And they're like, yeah, well, years of doing like jujitsu and stuff like this has to be the correct way. And it's like, well, you know. 50 years of science is saying no directly comparing what you're talking about. And yes, it is absolutely possible that jujitsu or martial arts could be the one exception to this rule or to be like one of a few exceptions to this rule. That is absolutely possible. Like we haven't studied it as a scientist. I I could not say that it's not, but the chances are really, really slim. Like with any, anything that is like a, a sport or an art, an art form. Yeah. As it gains popularity, it gains more scrutiny. Yes. And the reality is like jujitsu is super old, but it hasn't been super, super popular for as old as it is. So when you get as, and this is unfortunate, it's a little bit of a, a departure from like this whole conversation, but as things get bigger and they garner more in like more money and more revenue, yeah. then they get more eyes on it. When they get more eyes on it, then there's an opportunity for athletes to get paid more doing it. And when that happens, then you start to study the intricacies more closely. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at how baseball players trained in the forties and how baseball players train now, yeah, it is that way because they study the way that people learn. They study the way that people generate power. They study the mechanics and they're using way different mechanisms to improve athleticism than they were in like the eighties. And it's money. I mean, like, and it's money. And so maybe it's like unfun to, to admit that there's some places where like learning styles may go against the grain of the way that things have been done for 150 years. But that's not to say that that means it's wrong. Yes. And it's, and it's also not to say that you can't have situations, for example, where you have entire world-class gold medal teams that only do repetition-based learning. Yes. And I think that's where people get hung up is they go, you're saying this to demonize, like, for example, all schools that use this learning modality, which isn't the case. It's more just like, hey, here's some food for thought in some instances where somebody might be better off by implementing this or that. Yeah. Yeah. And but that's the all it really is. of people is like, I, I cannot believe some of the stuff. Like I had this, this is a stupid example, but I had this one video on TikTok get a t- 
ton of exposure. Yeah. And I watched as this was the first time this had ever happened to me. I watched as like thousands of people interacted with each other in the thread and argued. None of these people know you. Yeah. Will never. And, and why, I don't know. Like, why do we, why do we do that? It's so weird to, I've never had an interest to like, jump into a thread of bullshit you know and just spend out yeah they'll spend hours there just bickering yeah with people they'll never ever meet in their life it's so weird my husband laughs at me because uh i'll be sitting there just scrolling away and he's like what are you doing and i'm like i'm reading comment threads and i like <laughs> love them i'll go to a post that's controversial like none of mine i'll go to a post yeah. that's controversial and i just i love it it's like <laughs> just watch them they, yeah. People get so heated. They and you get know wild. I'm like, uh, these people need jujitsu. Yes. <laughs> they they need you to know? take a breath. Yeah. It's, yeah. Oh. Um, jumping back well, to the, like, posting about science and stuff like that. The thing that blows my mind, though, is, like, the people criticizing it are telling me, like, it's fake. It's not like, that's the thing I'll get to is people are like, it's fake. This is a lie. Like you're, you're twisting the data. And I'm like, why would I do that? Like, yeah. Why do I, am I trying to like make everyone else in jujitsu train improperly so that only my gym trains properly? Like that is wild. Like, no, I'm just trying to put out some good information that I thought was beneficial and exciting. And, you know, I've spent 10 years studying, so I have the ability to read and really comprehend it and translate it into a way that's easy for people to understand. Like, I'm just trying to do something good here. But yeah, I'm like, what do you think think my intentions are? I think that there's just, there will always be contrarians. It doesn't doesn't matter, right? Like you could be, um, I don't know, you could be Andrew Huberman citing... 90 peer-reviewed studies that just came out that have been scrutinized by like the staff at Stanford and yeah you can be implying certain things from them and you're going to have a group of people that are like think the earth is flat and that birds aren't real and like yeah okay yeah. how do you talk to, how do you talk to that person you don't yeah. because at the end of the day they live on some crazy universe that is just full of bs and like they spend their free time on the internet people they don't you know they don't know i don't know like they really do need more time on the mats well uh danny i want to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this we have navigated by the for the people that are listening to this part of it we have navigated insane technical difficulties (laughs) and i have mastered the audio for this so that everyone could have a good listening experience and uh yeah i really appreciate you taking the time to do this it was super fun um, it was awesome to dive into like the mindset of someone who's competed at your level and a bunch of different things. And we'll have to do this again in the future. Yeah, that would be really fun. Thank you so much for having me on. And I like love getting to talk about science at any point I can, uh, especially in relation to jujitsu. Not many people want to hear me babble about that. So thank you for, well, when you get a, the black belt tied around your waist in the future too i feel like that'll cement then you can really lean on that science leg and be like look at me now you know 10 years from now you guys yeah, watch yeah. out <laughs> all right well thank you we'll chat again thank you so much